Welcome to the Good Life EDU podcast presented by the Nebraska ESU Coordinating Council. I'm your host, Andrew Easton. Thanks for joining us as we discuss the latest in digital learning across Nebraska and around the country. All right, I'd like to welcome everybody back for another episode of the Good Life EDU podcast. And I'm getting a chance to visit today with Scott Butler, Director of Training at Project Harmony, uh, actually here in Nebraska. And so we're going to have a conversation today about the idea of hope and how important hope is not only for learning, but just for uh, our students' well-being. And this is a topic that Scott is incredibly well-versed in. Uh, and so I cannot wait to learn a little bit more from Scott as he shares out about this topic today. But to start things off, Scott, Welcome to the podcast. Thank you. It's good to be here. Yeah, grateful to connect with you. And so um, for those that don't know you, um, can you give us a little bit of your backstory and maybe talk a little bit too about Project Harmony? Yeah, absolutely. I um, spent the last 32 years in education, 25 years in public ed and the last eight in private, working primarily with kids with some behavior challenges and recently moved over to Project Harmony. So Project Harmony is a child advocacy center. That means we do all services related to child abuse and neglect, anything investigation, prevention. Uh, and we're really lucky here in Omaha to have Project Harmony's training institute where we go out in the community, talk a lot about trauma, talk a lot about child abuse and neglect prevention, all those kinds of things. So I'm still in education, just not with the kids every day. Well, we know our kids need so many different supports and there's ones that are provided from a myriad of different roles. And so grateful to have you as an advocate for children in your capacity, in addition to those uh, that are listening in that, that it might look a little bit different. But regardless of our backgrounds, uh, hope is something we can all focus in on. And so I'm excited for us to talk about that a little bit here over the course of our pod. So, Scott, where did this foray into working with hope get started? Yeah, my foray started back Gosh, probably around 2010, when the school district I was in at the time worked with the Gallup Student Engagement Poll. So Gallup has been assessing kids since 2009 and looking at hope across our country's kids. And we would get those scores back and see their engagement, see their well-being, see their hope. But it was kind of hard to figure out what to do about that. We know that hope is the number one predictor for all future success outcomes for kids and adults as well, for that matter. So we can apply it to our staff. And yet taking it from that theoretical approach to putting it into action was tough. Uh, so it wasn't until about five years ago where I was really working with a group of wonderful educators and we were trying to determine what's the trick to what we do. We were looking at some of our kids who were coming into our programming and thriving, and then others who were coming in and just stagnating. We weren't seeing the growth and the outcome that we wanted to see. So as a group, we started having lots and lots of conversations around that, and they eventually settled on hope. This idea that if we can give kids a sense of their future and some ideas on how to work towards that, we can make a huge impact with them. Gosh, and so as I think about hope, it starts to make me want to at least put together a little bit of a list of the things that a student could be hopeful for. 
And so could I ask, I guess, because, uh, right, I mean, it could range from uh, that I'm optimistic for something short term or optimistic about something long term. It could be in a academic capacity. It could be in a social emotional or it could be in like a relationship. Piece. Like, like there are so many different avenues to have hope. Help us kind of break this concept down a little bit. Yeah, absolutely. And you're right. Hope can follow us into all aspects of our life. So hope is really easy to define. It's the idea that I have a bright future ahead of me and I can do something to get myself there. So primarily I have a way there, a way power, a pathway for most of our kids. That's goals. I have something I want to accomplish in my life and we have willpower, the energy that's going to take me there. Um, So think about taking a road trip. Your destination is that bright future I want to get to. The roadmap and the streets you're going to travel on are your pathways. And it's the engine of your car that's going to drive you there and power you there. So we need both ways to get there and energy to get me there. So you were right on, Andrew, when you said that hope can go into different aspects of my life. It can be short term. It can be long term. I can be hopeful in my athletics, uh, hopeful in my academics hopeful with my family. And what we know is that kids who are hopeful are far more likely to do well in all aspects of their life. They're 12 percentage points higher achievers, just straight out of the gate. They're far more likely to reach their goals. They're more likely to go to college. Hope is a better predictor of law school graduation than the LSATs. Wow. It's also a great predictor, though, for our educators. So think in a time of life where we are seeing a lot of crisis among our educators, a lot of struggles. We know that high hope educators are more likely to show up every day to get the work done. They're more likely to be mission driven. The kids of a high hope educator are going to score much better than kids who are working with low hope educators. So it's not just about our kids. It's about us as adults coming to school every day, too. Uh, And I would imagine that's in part from the modeling that the uh, educator in the room is projecting for those learners and also at the same time, the culture uh, and the uh, ability to promote that students should be hopeful and excited about the things that they're doing. And this makes me wonder, I guess, and I heard uh, a number of statistics in what you just shared there. Can you we talked a little bit about this before the pod about the science of hope. Uh, I find that kind of fascinating that there has been quite a bit of research done regarding this topic. Yeah, this science emerged from a lot of uh, work with positive psychology back in the early 90s. And Rick Snyder was the first researcher who really quantified it and started measuring hope and looking at those outcomes. Since the early 90s, there's been over 2,000 published research studies looking at different aspects of hope, not only just on kids or in schools, but hope in the medical field, uh, hope in communities. And those studies consistently show us it's the number one predictor for all future success outcomes for people. And yet, interestingly enough, despite knowing that, only about half, just under half of our American young people meet the goal for being hopeful. What do you think are some of the things working against that 
as that statistic is obviously one that we would like to see <laughs> improve. We don't want well, everyone to be hopeful, um, but right. what are some of those factors? I mean, there, there certainly are the, uh, the present obvious with regards to pandemic and uh, et cetera. And so in addition to those, what are kind of the more nuanced pieces? I would imagine technology is a piece of this. I think the biggest issue is that we make assumptions on behalf of our kids. And I've done this as an educator. I, I can remember working with kids and asking them to set goals. And the most common goals I would get back would be things like, I want to get really good grades or I'm going to improve my attendance. And it wasn't until doing this for a few years that I reflected on that experience and said, I don't believe that that's really what's a huge passion for kids. So why are they writing goals that maybe don't tie into their passions? I mean, I would expect kids to write goals about, you know, being a professional athlete or being a musician or things like that, not about school attendance. And what I realized is that for all the work we do with kids, sometimes we make too many assumptions. We assume they can really set good goals without ever teaching them how to. We've never helped them really figure out what am I really good at? What do I love? What's my passion? And when you do that, you start getting some really fun goals. Um, a year ago, I had a, a sixth grader who was passionate about insects, loved bugs. And his goal was a short-term goal. He wanted to learn how to draw his six favorite insects. Now, that's a goal I can get behind. It's not about me. It's not about him thinking, oh, Scott wants me to have good attendance. It was something that he was really passionate about. It, it tied into an interest. It was something he wanted to improve on in an area he wanted to grow. So I think as we work with kids, sometimes we make it too much about us and not enough about them and what's important to them. In teaching them those prerequisite skills they need to be able to set good goals, identifying what I'm good at, talking to people in my life to get feedback from them. What do my teachers think I'm good at? What do my parents think I'm good at? What are some challenges I face? And how am I gonna overcome them? I think there's a lot of good conversations that we can have with kids to help them identify what their goals are rather than just echoing what they think we want to hear. Uh, I love that. And that's something that makes me smile as I think back to something that I was able to do when I was still in the classroom. And this is maybe a little more goal setting than it is hope, but I think that it, it, it is intertwined there. And I heard um, what you shared with there a moment ago resonated with me because of this. There was a time where I taught senior English with learners who it was the senior basic English class. And most of those students had not had a lot of academic success historically in English. It was their senior year and they were um, not interested. <laughs> I will say it this way. They already had an eye to the next phase of their adulthood, we'll say. And what I was hopeful for was that we might get to a point where they could set goals for themselves. And we started off with something we called a, a five for five, where we said, you can set a goal for doing anything and it could be the smallest thing possible, but I would love to see you hold yourself to doing this each day for five days straight. You don't get to wait till Friday and do it five times, um, but just set one goal for yourself. And we did it for the first five weeks of the school year. Eventually, we you know kind of phase it out and transition to something else to keep things fresh. But as you said, and, and so this is why I share the story, uh, you had everything from some of those students saying, I'm going to try to cuss three times or less. 
today. It was one girl's uh, goal that she had set for herself. Another student said he was going to play video games. Uh, another student said that they were going to meet someone new uh, and, and introduce themselves to somebody they didn't know to start off the school year. And it was uh, remarkable to see the variance. And then when you share those out loud for others to hear, maybe that's the place of it. When, when it was shared out loud, there was hope. Like there was the room was supporting what their aspirations were. Uh, and it, it was a really powerful experience that led to us eventually being able to set SMART goals, academic and otherwise. And you created a community of hope, right? Where everybody was sharing what they were working for. So I could support you in whatever it was that you were doing. And there is something about stating it, putting it out loud to somebody else that increases your ownership of it. And I love that you were getting at what was most important to them. What a great way as an educator to get to know your students too. You could see a lot about them and what they wanted to accomplish. Uh, absolutely. And it took five minutes, you know, maybe 10 the first day, but about five minutes, just a little check-in to start the class for the first few weeks of the school year. And then we you know, pivoted to other things, but uh, thanks. Yeah. I just, uh, that. Yeah. And you really, I mean, when we talk me. about willpower and waypower, um, you were really giving kids that opportunity to, to learn how to persevere towards something. It wasn't intense, but you were checking in with them. Mm -hmm. And that's, that's really important. We don't just set goals and forget about them. We have to work on them. My guess is there were some times that they had to report back that they um, didn't make a lot of progress or yeah. they hit an obstacle. So obstacles are a huge part of hope. We want kids to be able to set specific goals, work towards those, and then learn how to overcome the obstacles that get in their way. That's a huge part of developing hopeful hopeful kids. Oh, I love it. And that's something where we would talk a lot about strategies and saying that there are different strategies that might work for one person versus another and accountability and oh, love all of that. And uh, sorry, I'm kind of derailing our conversation about the science of hope. So to like maybe circle back around from it, but yeah, it gets uh, fun yeah. to talk about. Yeah, and sometimes it's nice to have yeah a, a little bit of a concrete example too that we can point to as, as our dialogue continues. But yeah, sorry to get back to the science of it. Yeah, so Hope is easily defined, bright future, goals, ability to overcome obstacles. It's easy to assess. Snyder back in 1994 wrote the child's hope scale and the adult hope scale. They're only about 12 questions each. Valid, reliable, multiple studies have shown their validity and reliability. Uh, probably a lot of the listeners who have worked with the Gallup student engagement poll would already have school-wide data on their hope scores for their kids. My guess is if they're working in a high school setting, they're coming out somewhere around 50% of their kids being hopeful. So when I said that I worked in a school where we really looked at this concept and decided to apply the hope, we looked at it from the perspective of we're getting pretty good results doing what we've always done. But what would happen and how would our results change if we intentionally embedded hope science into our curriculum every day? So we developed a K-12 advisement curriculum. We could embed it into reading classes, language arts, science, anywhere we wanted to. But we also kept it homeroom-based where those relationships already were. And we started using those scales, the, the child hope scale, to measure our outcomes and see, can we 
even get better results by re being very, very intentional about it. And again, those the curriculum was all those skills that I talked about the kids need. We can't just say set your goals. We have to talk about how do I know what I'm interested in? What skills do I need to develop in order to get that done? So that's what our curriculum was. We looked at responsibility. How do I manage my time? What are my strengths with executive function? And what do I need to develop there so I can maintain my focus on my goals? We talked about mindfulness. What do I do when I get frustrated? I hit an obstacle that I can't overcome. Do I just chuck the whole thing away and forget about it? Or do I practice some skills by which I can get myself back centered and ready to go again? And then we started measuring every quarter. So every time we sat down to do our reading and math benchmarks, we attached a hope benchmark to it as well. We also used that same opportunity to take the adult hope scale for ourselves to measure how we as staff working with the kids were doing with our own hope. So as an administrator, I was able to watch my teams to say, oh, this group's waning a little bit right now, or they're really struggling with this. They need some extra help overcoming the obstacles they're facing and working with their kids. So we embedded the science of hope into our day-to-day -day interactions with kids and one another. Did you find that there was any correlation between the student's level of hope and the teacher's? Uh, I think we maybe touched upon that a moment ago, but. Yes, there is. We know there is, right? And, and it's what you said. If we model it for kids, just like anything else we want kids to learn, we need to model it. So if we're asking kids to set goals, we need to talk about the goals we're setting as well. Mm -hmm. How do we overcome obstacles? The more we model it for our kids, the faster they adapt to it and learn it. Uh, and I was curious, too, to think if potentially it would be also that there's a reciprocity there where if I'm not feeling hopeful as an educator, but if my room of students has learned over the course of a semester or a few years time or are focusing on it in math class and then they come to English and they're still applying the lessons that they've learned, that it might bring about a different culture and vibe and potential interaction for me as the unhopeful educator um, for it to be uplifting for me. It does, you know, it, it really goes both ways. Eventually, we reached the point, Andrew, where we thought we can do better than the scales that we already had. We wanted something specific, and those scales are still being developed by the people that took over after me and field tested, but we developed scales specifically to schools. And on the staff side, we looked at how do I feel as an educator? Am I hopeful about my field of practice, but also am I hopeful for my students? And what you are saying is right on with, if I see my kids being successful, that feeds my hope, not only for them, but my own sense of efficacy. I'm able to accomplish something with them that I didn't think I would accomplish. And as I see their results go up, it makes me feel better and more motivated, more driven to do the work. And in a time like we're in now, where we're seeing people struggling so much because of this pandemic, we need that more than ever. So one of the questions that comes to my mind as an educator, and I don't know the answer to it yet, is can we use hope science to address the teacher shortage? 
if we create high hope institutions of learning, school cultures that are fully embedded in the science of hope, does that drive, I know we already know it drives my performance as an educator. Does it drive my efficacy enough that I decide to stay in the field longer? Um, does it become a more inviting looking environment for young people who are looking at a career? My guess is kids feel pretty drawn to high hope educators. If we could model that, I think it becomes a pretty exciting place to be. So there's this whole application to our field out there yet that I'm excited to see where that could go. And I would imagine as it sort of trickles upward or however direction that I'm trying to envision this going, it would be our building leaders who also need to not only implement the systems and make this a priority, but it starts there with regards to modeling and bringing about this as what the staff is going to be about. And hiring practices, right? Mm, So if I have a 12 question assessment by which I can model a candidate's hope levels about the profession, I foresee a world where we're doing hope assessments with all of our our teacher candidates or all of our employees before we bring them on so that I can make sure that I'm hiring high hope people to come into my school every day. And once we've got them, yes, we need to monitor that data to align our professional development supports to make sure we keep their high hope levels up. It's natural. All of us are going to encounter obstacles. Our hope is going to grow and wane over time. That's why we have to monitor it. And just like we benchmark reading and math for kids, we can benchmark hope. Some of the most recent studies coming out are looking at the collective impact of hope. So can we build a whole city that's a high hope city, a whole school, a whole organization Uh, So it's not just necessarily uh, an individual assessment, but it can become a community assessment too. Wow. That would be tremendous to get a little window into what Omaha or, you know, any one of these areas that you're talking about to think about it in that broader context and to view hope as being contagious almost, (laughs) right? Is what you're talking about. Right. Absolutely. And we're talking about applications in schools, but it can apply to all different environments. It's been applied to the medical field. We know that high hope practitioners get better results with their patients. High hope patients require less pain medication. They heal faster. So it's equally applied throughout all different organizations and and types of work. Well, then if we had to boil this down, and you mentioned earlier, whether that's in reading or language arts, science or social studies, uh, some of the curriculum pieces that you alluded to earlier, uh, can you give us maybe just one example of implementation that would help a teacher better understand where this might meet, what they're already being asked to do, right? And, And there's time constraints and everything else, but how do you embed that in a way that makes it seamless and not just one more thing? Yeah, well, let's continue the conversation. You're a language arts teacher, right? Yep. So my guess is you had some favorite novels that you love to teach or short stories that you love to teach. Absolutely, yes. Any that you care to own? Um, you know what? Can we do poetry? One of my sure. favorite poems is the poem If by Rudyard Kipling. I'm very inspired by that one. That one certainly leaves me feeling hopeful. 
Yeah. So let's let's think about that poem then from a perspective of hope. You say it leaves you feeling hopeful. What's the what is it that's in that poem? What what messages equates to hope for you? Yeah, that poem really breaks down over its duration the ways in which Roger Kipling would advocate that you, or I should say the speaker, would advocate for you to lead your life and to have led it well. And so we'll just go first. And I have this right off the top of my head. I have this whole poem memorized. We'll just do the first, we'll say yeah. here. Um, if you can keep your head when all about you are losing theirs and blaming it on you. If you can trust yourself when all men doubt you, but make allowance for their doubting too. And then it kind of gets in a rhythm like that where it gives all these different pieces of advice. So right there though, in that first stanza, Kipling's already talking about strategies that we can use in our lives when we encounter obstacles. So when everybody else is losing it for whatever challenge there is, what do you do to stay calm? And he's saying, if you stay calm, you're going to be more successful in doing that. We can apply that right to, to hope science. We want to make sure you have the ability to overcome obstacles that get in your way. So what's it look like when you hit obstacles? What does frustration look like for you? What does anger look like for you? Is that what Kipling's talking about? People losing it? When you think about losing it, does that mean I'm sitting and crying or shutting down and doing nothing or freaking out and getting angry? So we can talk about with individual kids, what does it mean when I hit obstacles? And what do I need to do to be successful according to Kipling? If I have to keep my wits about me, what do I need to do? What strategies can we teach and practice that allow us to maintain our wits? So I love that from a language arts perspective, being able to apply this to those kinds of themes, to characters. Look at a story and say, who's the most hopeful person in the story? Why? What if that person didn't have that hope? How would the whole story change? We can easily apply that to conflicts, right? Uh, social studies classes. What is it about conflicts that people have encountered, that governments and societies have encountered, and how did they solve them? Anything that looks at problem solving, and I think school's all about problem solving, is all about how do we reach our goals when we encounter obstacles? That's all hope science in action. I love all of those practical examples, and now my brain's just a buzz. <laughs> yeah, you can think of them, right? Yes, thanks for unlocking that through the opportunity to just have a brief conversation about what that might look like in action. And, and you're certainly still covering your content, and you're certainly still going through the different standards that you're being asked to Absolutely. assess, and at the same time, just uh, weaving in those conversations that are going to lead to students being a little more hopeful and, and understanding what they need to get themselves in that mindset. So, well, I say this almost every time, Scott, that I'm on the pod, but a half an hour goes so incredibly fast. And so I'm grateful that we got a chance today to talk about everything from the definition to how we measure it to how schools can kind of implement some of these practices. Uh, what is it that I'm leaving out? Or what is it that we should maybe give a little bit of space and time to um, before we conclude our conversation? Yeah, I think there is a huge call to action in this work. As educators, our primary work is helping our kids achieve whatever they most want to achieve in life, building a successful society. We know that hope is the number one predictor 
of those success outcomes. We have to do something with that, right? If somebody says, here's the greatest tool that you have in your work, we don't leave it in the toolbox in the back of the pickup truck. We get it out and we use it every single day. So I think there's a moral imperative. As my staff and I started looking at this a few years ago and how this can inform our work, we said we absolutely owe it to ourselves and our students to figure out how to do this and do it well. So it, it's a huge call to action in my mind. Uh, Scott, you're making me more hopeful just having this conversation. <laughs> I'm loving it. I'm absolutely right. loving it. And I, uh, for anyone who's interested in continuing to learn from you or if they'd like to reach out, uh, where can they find your work or contact you? Yeah, um, I'm, I'm easily found at the Project Harmony Training Institute. If you go to the Project Harmony website, there's a training section in there. Um, you can connect with me there. We are actively developing content on hope and trainings on hope. I have a book study getting ready to go live here by the end of March that, that people can sign up for, but we'll be, we'll be putting more trainings out on that website soon. Well, thank you so much for all your advocacy in this regard and for supporting children in this way and educators in this way. And I'm really excited that uh, we've had a chance to capture this conversation and share it out with others hopeful <laughs> that uh, it'll speak to others the way it has spoken to me just in us going back and forth today. So thank you so much for your time, Scott. You betcha. Thank you. 